Just like most episodes, this one contains strong language. The views and opinions expressed on this podcast are those of the host and guests and in no way represent the state of Oklahoma, the Oklahoma Historical Society, or the Oklahoma State Historic Preservation Office. Hey, listening friends, Jack here. And I would like to tell you about the sponsor of today's episode. And that sponsor is Atlas. Atlas is a branding, web development, and content marketing agency. As a business owner, your day-to-day is uncharted enough. From branding and web design to content marketing, Atlas will help you navigate this digital terrain with ease. In today's world, social media is a great tool. However, you need to have a concrete, focused plan on how to use it. And that's where Atlas comes in. Atlas can help you navigate this modern digital world. And on top of that, Atlas can also help you with traditional means of marketing. So if you would like to book your free consultation, please visit atlasokc.com. That's A-T-L-A-S-O-K-C.com for your free consultation. Welcome to the Musings of an ADD Mind podcast. This is your host, Jack. And if you've listened for any amount of time to my podcast, you know that I have severe ADD. And at any moment, we could go off on a side quest that hopefully we will eventually work our way back around to the topic of the show. But today we are starting what is going to be a monthly bonus feature called Science with Lars. And he's going to this is going to be shocking, folks. He's going to talk about things that are sciency. So don't don't be surprised if it's sciency. But anyway, <laughs> today my guest is Lars Cade. Lars, why don't you uh, tell us a little bit about yourself and um, give a quick cliff note version, and then you can get into teaching us. Uh, sure thing. Uh, my name is Lars, as you just mentioned. Um, I live uh, here with my wife and kids in Raleigh, North Carolina. And uh, Jack and I got in touch through the uh, Deconversion Anonymous Facebook group. Um, we both were formerly religious and have shared our stories uh, on uh, the Graceful Atheist podcast. Uh, so if you want to hear a little more about us there, you certainly can. Uh, but uh, Jack and I have found that we enjoy talking about science and talking with people who don't necessarily understand it very well. And uh, since science was one of the big things that got me to start uh, questioning the other things that I believed and eventually led to me leaving my religion behind. Uh, it's a big, important part of my life. And I spent the last several years, uh, what I call rage learning, uh, things that I was once denied, things that I was told were not the way they are because of religious dogma, as opposed to any evidence or facts to back it up. Um, and as a result, I know a fair bit about a lot of different scientific topics, and I feel like I'm pretty good at communicating them. So that's what we're going to try to do here today. Yes, yes. Uh, I have I have read many a scientific debate on Facebook <laughs> with Lars, and he's always uh, communicates his ideas very, very well, Thank you. Um, which is it's something that I sort of have a problem with. My brain skips certain things and I'm forever going back and having to edit what I initially put in because I'm like, oh, I meant to say this and I left that out and I sound like a dork now. But <laughs> Lars does not have that problem. He always is very well versed in whatever it is that particular debate is about. And if he and he will, you know, back that up with with, hey, here's this research paper. So <laughs> uh, he, he he knows what he's talking about. And uh, anyway, what's what's today's topic? And uh, uh. let's get going on it. All right. Yeah. Well, to kick things off, let's start with the topic that really got me to start uh, questioning the things that I've been raised with as dogma, and that's evolution. Uh, just to give a quick definition, evolution in the general sense just means any sort of change over some amount of time. Usually, though, in modern parlance, when we use it without any sort of specific qualification, like we're not talking about artistic evolution or political or societal evolution, we mean biological evolution. And so that's what I'm going to be talking about today. So I want to go over five main things here, if we have time. 
Uh, first, before we even start talking about science with Lars, we need to go over at least a brief amount of what is science, then <laughs> yes. what is evolution, what is evolutionary theory, what is the evidence for evolution, and what are some common misconceptions about it? Uh, because thanks to a lot of people who have ideological dispositions against their the under, scientific understanding of evolution, uh, there is often a lot of confusion about it. And it is a complicated topic. Once you understand it, it makes a lot of sense. But if you only get the pop culture version of it, you're probably going to have a lot of misconceptions. So that's why we need to go over that at the end. So just to start out, what is science? What, what do we mean when we say something is scientific as opposed to political or societal or any other sort of topic? A lot of times, especially like in grade school, science is taught as a bit of trivia. Like, hey, this is the three types of rocks that you're going to find, metamorphic, igneous, and sedimentary, and this is the rock cycle, how they go through those things. Well, that's interesting, but it's not really science. It's just some fact that someone has figured out. Right, right. Science is a method and practice for gaining knowledge of the world around us. Um, there's lots of philosophical and scientific debate over what makes something scientific and not and there's always going to be some cases at the edges that it's kind of difficult to categorize as either scientific or non-scientific. But in general, the definition that I try to use is that science is the pursuit or generation of knowledge of physical existence by the systematic testing of a hypothesis against observation. Now, each of those terms needs its own definition. Very briefly, knowledge is any belief that you have that you can justify with accurate predictive power. So if I think that I know that I'm talking to Jack right now, well, I can justify that by looking at the screen and seeing Jack responding to me. And someone else could come over if I say, hey, I'm talking to Jack now, and they could see Jack on the screen responding to my speaking. So I've accurately predicted something that someone else could view. So I know I can justify that I am talking with Jack right now. The physical universe, again, it's pretty straightforward. It's the existence in which we live. Um, this doesn't include any potential supernatural or extra dimensional or anything else existence that may be real, but we have no access to it, at least not in any sort of measurable way. The systematic testing that I mentioned means that any observation you take is something that you can write down and or record in some consistent way. So um, if I'm, you know, again, talking with Jack, I can say I can, well, rather Jack is recording this meeting right now. It's he clicks the button to start the recording. I agree to the recording, and now the meeting is being recorded. And we can do this again, and we can test to make sure that the Zoom application is correctly recording our video and audio. And the testing of it is, if we think this works, we take the actions that it should, should produce the result we expect and see if we get them. That's, that's the testing of the hypothesis that I'm talking with Jack right now. And finally, that gets to the word hypothesis. A hypothesis is a statement of if, then, and because. So if this idea is true, then this observation should be true because this is what's happening. So if I'm actually in a meeting with Jack, then I should be able to see Jack on my screen responding to my speech because we are engaged in a Zoom meeting. Pretty simple. Doesn't take a lot of testing or verification to work out that it's true, and it doesn't have a lot of wider application, but it's still a testable hypothesis. That's... Um, that's probably one of the best descriptions I've heard sort of of that whole well, thank process. You. It, really, I, it really brings it you know, brings it down. Not that people are stupid, but you know what I mean? It just makes it very easy to digest sort of what that whole method is. And people need to realize, I guess, that when they say scientists, they're not necessarily thinking about people in a sterile room with the lab jacket on and goggles and, you know, and dishwashing gloves on. It, it, there's a lot more to it than that. And your explanation really sort of uh, brings that point home. So thank you for that. Well, thank you. I, I, I've worked a long time on coming up with a good way to communicate that in a succinct <laughs> fashion. Yeah. Uh, so hopefully it gets the point across. We, so, we've needed that the last four-ish years. Oh, yeah, for sure. Uh, I, I would argue even longer that... Uh, so this has actually been known for quite a while. Uh, the famous author Isaac Asimov back in 1980 wrote this. He said, there is a cult of ignorance in the United States, and there has always been. The strain of anti-intellectualism has been a constant thread winding its way through our political and cultural life, nurtured by the false notion that democracy means that my ignorance is just as good as your knowledge. And I, I think he put it very well. Uh, people who reject science, who don't understand it, who would rather replace it with their beliefs that they find to be equally good, 
tend to think that their belief is the same as knowledge, that nope, believing something makes it true and that they don't necessarily need anything further than their own belief to justify what they deem to be knowledge. And that's why I defined knowledge earlier as a justifiable belief with accurate right. predictive power, because it's fine to believe that Bigfoot uh, exists, that Bigfoot exists. But if you can't actually show me a Bigfoot, well, it remains nothing but a belief and it doesn't count as knowledge or at least right. evidence that is consistent with a Bigfoot to the exclusion of other ideas. So, you know, that is, yeah, that, that is the problem that I hope to address with my science communication on these groups that Jack and I are on. So yeah. with that basic definition of science out right. of the way, what's evolution? Why is it scientific? What is the evidence for it? We're going to get into all of that. As uh, I mentioned, real, real Sorry, quick before you get going, and I know that this sort of is going to tie into uh, the fifth point that you said you wanted to make. Part of the problem is everybody thinks evolution is linear. And I think the, you know, the, the shirt with the monkey to the man is partially why. Mm -hmm. That's not how evolution works. It's more like vines. <laughs> it, yeah. it goes all over. It goes. Sometimes the end point of a species is not always the best maximum version of whatever that is. Sometimes it's the end point because it wasn't, you know, <laughs> like the yeah. final great sort of thing that could adapt to stuff. Right. Well, more to the point, linear. there is no end point to evolution. Well, yes, it's always going. My point, I mean, like the last sort of version of whatever you know, yes. the thing well, is. And it's the last version is always the worst one because it went extinct. <laughs> right. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and it, it's not a, the straight line of we went from monkey to human. And people always say, well, I didn't evolve from a chimpanzee. No, you didn't. Chimpanzees and humans evolved from a common ancestor. Yep. And then the chimpanzee went their route. People went our route. And that's mm -hmm. what happened. So no, you did not evolve from a chimp. You're right. When you say that, you didn't. Yeah. But well, we have a common ancestor. Right. And even that language sometimes bothers me that I don't like using the phrase evolved from it, it implies a, a, almost like a metamorphosis or right. uh, it implies that you are your ancestors and you're not, you personally are an individual part of a population at any given time, the rest of your population, in this case, the humans that we call homo sapiens are, is it rather it's composed of a bunch of individuals each of them unique, each of them descended from their immediate right. ancestors. And yes, if you go back, there is a line of descent all the way back to the last universal common ancestor of all life on earth. But the individual identity is constant over the course of their life. Right. right. Um, and, and so I like to use the term emerged from or from within because it shows that evolution diversifies that humans have never stopped being apes. We are still apes in the exact same way right, right. And for the exact same reasons that the chimpanzees and bonobos and gorillas and orangutans and gibbons are all apes, plus all the many extinct apes that we have fossils of. That ape identity encompasses all of them. And so rather than evolving from apes, we evolved within the apes. We haven't lost the fact that we're apes right, and right. the fact that apes are monkeys. It, that is, that is, those words are actually much better than evolved from I That's guess people have this it. notion of just, for example, all of us, you know, there was Homo heidelbergensis and 50 of them all of a sudden gave birth to Neanderthal. That's not how it works. It happened right. slowly over time. Genetics change, people mm -hmm. change, and then it's slow. It's not a butterfly emerging from a cocoon. Yeah. Completely yeah, I mean, changed. <laughs> it, it's important. Well, and that's that's just it. I'll get into those misconceptions in a bit, but it's important to remember that species are labels. Species are real things. They really are groups of organisms that have more in common with each other than they do with anything else. And they form a single population with a shared gene pool. Right, that, right. That's more or less what a species is. Let me be clear. That's a definition of species. There are many different definitions that biologists use, and they are useful in different contexts, and none is fully comprehensive. Right, However, right. any uh, categorization that we give above species, if we try to give it a level like genus, family, order, uh, phylum, or sorry, order, class, phylum, kingdom, and domain, well, those are arbitrary. Um, they are based on the older idea of the great chain of being in which things have ranks of being more like the non-living or more like the gods. And 
we don't necessarily use that idea right. in science anymore. And yet the uh, ranking persists. It is useful to an extent, but uh, nowadays scientists prefer to use the term clade. A clade is a group of organisms that shares common ancestry and includes all the current organisms up to, and uh, rather, and also all their extinct relatives up to their last common ancestor. Um, and right. that can be as simple as a family. Me and my wife and my kids form a clade. Okay. We could also then expand it to include our grandparents and form another clade. And it also goes as wide as all life on earth is still a clade because it's a group of organisms united by a common ancestry up to and including their last common ancestor. So these are all a right. bunch of a bunch Thank of technical you. terms, right? Yeah. And yeah. so no, thanks for getting them out of the way because they'll yeah. probably come up as you keep going. So. Right. So let's get into what they mean. Yeah. So yeah. what is evolution? When we say biological evolution, uh, as mentioned earlier, that's what we're going to, we're just going to say evolution and mean biological evolution. Biological evolution is the change in heritable traits or sometimes specifically mentioned as genetic alleles or variations in genes in a population of organisms over successive generations. So from generation to generation, as organisms keep reproducing and making more organisms, there are going to be changes between generations and throughout the population. And sometimes that also leads to diversification over time, meaning that some changes show up more often in one part of the population than in another. And eventually we get branching populations that split off from each other and would be recognized by scientists as distinct species even though their ancestors were just one species. So this idea is the best and currently only scientific explanation of the unity, diversity, and history of life on Earth. There are people who have other ideas about it, um, but these are always and only based on ideology or religion or claims that they otherwise can't support. They aren't scientific because they're not drawn from data. They don't explain any data. They don't predict any data. They don't produce any results. They're just ideas. And ideas without support gain no traction among the scientific community. So uh, we'll get into a bit of things that actually, you know what, let's go ahead right now, just to get it out of the way. Let's talk about yeah. a few things that evolution is not. You already mentioned metamorphosis. Metamorphosis is when one organism changes their form dramatically over the course of their life. Almost every multicellular organism undergoes some kind of metamorphosis. You and I started out as a single cell fertilized in our mother, right? A uh, zygote. Well, I'm very different from that zygote now. Yes, I have the same genetic code, but my overall form is very different from that. I, it go, we, you know, we all went through several stages, starting with the blastula, uh, the, the ball of cells that eventually develops an anus and then a mouth. And so, uh, yes, you all were once anuses. Make of that what you will. So, some people and never leave that. Uh, some that, people never leave it. And some of them become president, right? Uh, <laughs> uh, but, uh, you know, th there's obviously a lot more to it, uh, but we don't have time to get into that today. But yes, we all undergo some kind of metamorphosis. We change over the course of our lifetime uh, with some changes being more dramatic than others. But that's not evolution. That's just an organism going through its life stages. That Another word for that is ontogeny. Um, so it's how things come to be and change over time. It's also not magic. Uh, there's nothing that where a dinosaur one day hatched an egg that was a chicken. That didn't happen. Uh, changes are never going to be that dramatic. Any very dramatic change is almost always lethal to any organism. So if there were a problem mutation in the zygote that produced me that didn't allow for the development of a head, well, I just wouldn't be here today. That'd be a pretty dramatic change and it doesn't really do much. But I'm also not a 100% perfect clone of either of my parents. And so there is some change from generation to generation, meaning that as soon as I was conceived, evolution happened. This is difficult for some people to understand. They think of evolution as, you know, a fish crawling out of the water. Well, no, that fish was an individual that could live a little more on land than on, in water and like the other fish. And there are even fish like that today that spend some amount of time on land. Um, it's Speaking of fish, there was that one argument, what, about three weeks ago where the guy said, so you're expecting me to believe that fish just grew lungs and could breathe air? To which I responded, you are aware that lungfish are a thing. They exist today. You can, you can go and catch them and eat them if you want. <laughs> well, I'll tell you, back when, I, back when I was raised in an evolution-denying household, no, I did not know that lungfish have actual lungs. I thought that they were just called that because they could spend time out of the water. I had no idea that they, in fact, have actual lungs. And for those curious, 
um, lungfish are genetically the closest relatives to all the tetrapods. Tetrapods are the land-based animals with two pairs of limbs, or at least their ancestral state is two pairs of limbs uh, that breathe air and generally live at least some of the time on land. Now, some of them have also adapted to live full-time in the water, uh, like whales or the extinct uh, plesiosaurs or ichthyosaurs or mosasaurs, but in general, uh, that's going to be the tetrapods. And yes, some of them don't have all four limbs anymore, like snakes or manatees, um, but that's the general case. Right, right. Now that I've sidetracked you, side-quested you, let's... <laughs> let's yeah, so, so a couple more things that evolution is definitely not. It's not a just-so story. It's not something that someone just made up because they felt like having an explanation and having some explanation was better than having none at all. No, it's rather, it's based on the collection of evidence and the testing of hypotheses in a scientific manner, as I mentioned earlier, uh, and we'll get into a bit of that evidence later. It's not just philosophy. It's not someone just musing and coming up with ideas that all make sense together, whether or not they have any correspondence to the real world. Um, and that, you know, that's why I like to study the philosophy of science, not just philosophy by itself. Otherwise, you tend to go down rabbit trails that don't make a lot of sense. At least that is my experience. Um, it's not religion. Uh, there's nothing asserted as dogma. It makes no claims about anything supernatural, about anything moral, about any behavior or practices or rituals that anyone has to partake in. It has no prophets, priests, or pastors. It's a scientific idea that is as open to questioning and testing as any other scientific idea. Um, and technically subject to overturning just like any other scientific idea, like the idea that matter is made of atoms is technically open to being overturned by new evidence. It's just very unlikely that it's going to happen. Um, and finally, it's also not an explanation for the origin of life. Like any idea, any scientific or philosophical idea it is based on some assumptions. And one of the assumptions of evolutionary theory is that life exists. It, again, it seems kind of obvious, but it does need to be stated because a lot of times people conflate the study of the diversity of life and the history of life with the study of the origin of life. And they're not the same thing because the processes that lead to chemicals being able to replicate with variation in an environment is not the same as what happens to those chemical reactions as they continue to replicate with variation in their environment. That's yeah. I mean, yeah, um, sorry. <laughs> yeah. Go, go ahead. No, 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 that's, I'm whatever thought I had is, left my mind so that uh, no worries we, we can move on because that happens to me frequently so <laughs> <laughs> not a problem uh so that that's our definitions out of the way what evolution is and what it isn't so this is not quite the same as evolutionary theory or the theory of evolution we can observe that these things happen in organisms that life changes over time and diversifies and some goes extinct and some spreads out and becomes more common but evolutionary theory is the explanation of why this happens. So just like we can observe that uh, certain compounds, when you put them together in water, will form a certain kind of crystal, that's chemistry. We see this happening. Atomic theory helps us understand why it's happening. Um, so if we understand that matter is made of individual atoms that have protons, neutrons, and electrons, and that these cause them to bond together in certain ways, we can accurately predict what sort of results we're going to get when we mix these things together, even if we've never done it before. And right. that's, that's a cool thing about chemistry. And the same goes for evolutionary theory. Evolutionary theory helps us understand why we see the changes that we do, what changes are possible, what changes are not possible. And this gives us criteria for falsification. So like there is, in theory, if we observed a griffin, for example, you know, an animal that's part lion, part bird, well, that would actually be a falsification of evolutionary theory as we understand it now, because based on the understanding that we have now of inheritance, of traits in an organism that are passed from one generation to the next, there's no way to have one organism have both a lion and an eagle as ancestors. But that's what evolutionary theory is. It helps us understand why we see what we do see, why we don't see what we don't see, and what we should see if it's true. Um, it's also useful, well, we'll get into that bit. <laughs> I want to talk about what the uses of evolutionary theory are, but first we need to understand what it means, right? Right, so, right, yeah. It's, as I mentioned, based on some assumptions. Uh, one of them we already mentioned is that there are populations of organisms, things that are alive, that are reproducing in an environment. That's one of the assumptions. Now, since we can observe that there are things that are currently alive reproducing in an environment, it seems like a pretty good assumption. So I don't think anyone's going to challenge that one. Another assumption is that organisms will reproduce the same kind of organism as themselves. 
Again, it seems fairly straightforward. Even the word reproduce kind of implies that this is the case, but it's worth repeating. As I mentioned before, evolution isn't magic. You'll never get a dog producing a cat or a cat producing a dog. Um, but you will get a cat producing a cat that isn't exactly like itself. And so with that reproduction of the same kind, there's always going to be some variation between parent or parents and offspring. And this applies to bacteria that just split themselves in half and make two new cells all the way up to whales that you know weigh a hundred tons and make new whales that'll also weigh a hundred tons. Um, every organism is going to reproduce. And every time there's at least some change from one generation to the next. These changes are, are usually called mutations. They are generally in the genome, the stretch of DNA that is the, is the molecule copied from one generation to the next. Now, there's also other kinds of inheritance, but they're not as big a part of it. And so we're not going to go into those today. Um, <laughs> right, right, right. Yeah. That's why this is going to be a monthly segment, folks, because yes. a lot of this stuff uh, requires I'm going through more this. than one <laughs> episode to discuss or a singular episode. Yeah. <laughs> we're just going over the basics today just to get help, you know, help you get an understanding of what this stuff means um, so that, you know, next time you're talking to a biologist, instead of just uh, staring off into space, you can actually engage them with what their, what right. their interest is and have a more interesting conversation. At least that's my hope. So. Another assumption is that variation that arises in one population or part of a population is not going to be shared with another one that doesn't share its gene pool. So if uh, you know Jack and I have different colored eyes, I believe mine are light gray and yours are was it sort of dark brown? Brownish. Brownish. Well, if we were the founding fathers of a new population on Mars and Titan, respectively, um, and we had clones of ourselves or, you know, some way of reproducing ourselves with just these eye traits. Well, no one on Mars would ever have blue gray eyes and no one on Titan would ever have dark brown eyes right. because we wouldn't be sharing those genes. And obviously we'd have to have some uh, woman to reproduce with. So someone with the same color eyes as us with the same uh, genetic uh, locus for those, for those eye colors. So not the best example, but hopefully you get the idea. This this sort of ties in because you brought up Mars and Titan. Um, one of the, I guess, hypotheses is that if humans were to colonate or colonize Mars, over time, the population on Mars would become taller than the population on Earth because the gravity is less. Possibly, I just although, say that's a theory. I, yeah. not, obviously, we don't know if that's true. But as you were saying, that is sort of a logical type of thing to think that, you know, because we're made for the Earth. And as we're not on right. Earth, we would change to adapt to whatever planet we're on, be it yeah. or even the moon Titan. So that's possible. It's also possible they'd end up being shorter because human bone growth right. is spurred <laughs> by uh, stress. Right. So the weight of our cells pushing down on our bones is part of what helps them grow long. So we actually might end up shorter. <laughs> but and either way, it's still, it's still an yes. interesting thing to wonder. And it, would it be is several hundred years before we know the answer to that. Yeah. We would both, you and I will both not be here to know the answer to that. Sadly, but. <laughs> no, but yes, if, if indeed humans ever colonize another planet, um, I, I imagine that speciation between human populations would be relatively rapid on, on the order of probably tens of thousands of years, which sounds slow, but, uh, for speciation times, it's actually pretty quickly, especially yeah. with our long time between reproduction. It's about 25 years on average for humans. Right, right. Yeah, yeah. Uh, anyway, from just, one generation to the next. Just a thought I had as you were mentioning that because I yeah. found that theory to be somewhat fascinating. So. Yeah. If you want to see uh, a, a more uh, in-depth treatment of that in science fiction, uh, the, the show The Expanse. Uh, yep, it, yep. Has the Belters. <laughs> yes. Has, has some actual... Ram, they actually take into account the ramifications of living in other environments to an extent. So it's pretty cool. I have two episodes left of The Expanse. Oh, awesome. I'll be, I'll be it, it, it ends pretty well. I, I was pretty satisfied with the ending on that. I'm, I'm hoping to do that today, actually. That's my plan for when we're done with this. Uh, another assumption. In every generation, more offspring will be produced than will themselves go on to reproduce. Meaning that, or at least I should say that the offspring will have different numbers of offspring themselves. Um, some of them won't reproduce at all. Some of them will reproduce quite a bit. In each of these cases, that means that the traits that are unique to each of those offspring, as we mentioned already, there's changes from one generation to the next, and each offspring is going to be at least a little different 
from the others. Well, each of those having unique traits is going to pass them on at different rates. And there are many different reasons for this. Sometimes it's just chance. Uh, you know, sometimes someone happens to look a little sexier than the others. And so they get all the attention from the opposite sex. Sometimes they've got something that helps them get a little more food than the rest. And so they're, they have better nutrition, all kinds of reasons. Sometimes why... they're married to Jim Bob Duggar and they just don't know when to Sometimes stop. they're married to Jim Bob Duggar. Yes. Um, <laughs> my parents themselves are fairly good evolutionary successes. They managed to pump out seven kids in 11 years. Um, I'm the oldest, if you're curious. That's that's impressive. Yes. Um, and, and so, you know, they're, you know, each, each individual have different numbers of offspring, if they have offspring at all, of course. So again, this is an assumption. We can't actually observe every single organism reproducing every single time to verify that this is the case, but it does seem to be a reasonable assumption because it does hold true every time we do observe organisms. Right. Another assumption, resources are limited. So that could be time, space, food, water, air, mates, you name it, um, money, even in a society with money, right? Resources are limited. And so because these resources are limited, each of these contributes in some fact, some way to the likelihood of an organism to reproduce or the ability of an organism to survive long enough to reproduce. If you don't get enough food and die in childhood, you're not making any offspring. So um, because resources are limited, some organisms are going to be better able to acquire and use those resources than others, right? Correct. And finally, Environments change over time. There is no such thing as a 100% static environment. Uh, as I mentioned earlier, evolution does generally mean change of any kind over time. And yes, environments evolve too. So what is today a coastline will eventually be a mountain. What is today a mountain will eventually be a desert. Because these changes happen, any organisms in them from generation to generation, each generation is only adapted to the climate at the time that they were born. By the time they have right. their own offspring, the environment's just at least that much different and their offspring have new challenges to face. And so traits that might have actually been bad for them in a previous generation can actually, if they arise through mutation, become a good one. Or traits that didn't have any particular effect one way or another may suddenly become more useful in a new environment. Um, this is one of the things we can see in the fossil record. There are at least five instances of major extinction where at least 75% of the species around went extinct. And right, the ones right. that stuck around, often it was due to traits that didn't seem particularly adaptive beforehand, but for whatever reason, they were well adapted to this new environment after things changed. Um, some of the most famous are the Lystrosaurus um, animals. They are a type of dicynodont, uh, which is a weird looking you imagine a combination of a lizard, a hippopotamus, and a pig, and you might you might be somewhere on the right track. Uh, <laughs> very strange organisms, uh, at least by modern standards. Uh, but their population managed to survive the Permian mass extinction about 251 million years ago. Uh, there was uh, severe volcanic activity on Earth that poisoned the atmosphere and changed a lot of the environment, and it caused something like 95% of marine species and about 70% of land species to go extinct. It was a terrible time to be alive, but yes, yes. these Lystrosauruses, they just went hog wild. Uh, they, they suddenly for several million years after this time, they're like the most common vertebrate fossil around. Uh, they're, they're just everywhere. Now, obviously they didn't, they didn't continue to last. Uh, the last dicynodont went extinct in the Jurassic period, but it's a good example of how traits that might not have any particular advantage in one generation in a later generation will. So because environments change, and because of all these other previous assumptions that I mentioned, evolution is inevitable. The only thing that can stop evolution is extinction. So, you know, this means that, you know, as long as we're alive, hey, if we're still evolving. Now, humans don't really, uh, aren't really subject much to the environment as a strong factor for our survival and reproduction. Uh, we've built societies now that tend to keep people from dying a lot more than we used to. Um, and to, sorry, I just realized I forgot to define natural selection. Natural selection is the tendency of organisms to have more offspring specifically because of their relation to their environment. I, mean, I did mention that there's a lot of different factors that can cause them to have more or fewer offspring than others. Natural selection is specifically as regards their environment. It's not uh, due to happenstance. It's not necessarily due to uh, what sexual selection, where one organism is considered sexier than another to its potential mates. Um, and it, it is, it may or may not be the primary uh, 
mechanism by which evolution occurs. Uh, there is actually still ongoing debate over whether that's more important or whether neutral mutation that happens to become part of the population is more important. Okay. Unfortunately, because humans can't run experiments over millions of years, it is a little difficult to determine. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. There aren't a lot of Highlanders. Running Not around. so many. And, <laughs> and even then, after a while, they, they eventually crave death themselves. So yeah, um, that is also true. <laughs> uh, so yeah, as these populations diversify, um, assuming all these assumptions hold true, and as far as we can tell, they always do, then their descendants will also diversify. It's not like a species comes on the scene and then that's it. No, their descendants can diversify just as much as they did from their ancestors. And so, for example, even in our own group, the humans, there have been at least 10 other species of humans in the past. Right. Uh, unfortunately, the last of them died out around 30,000 years ago, and we never got to meet them. At least none of us alive ever got to meet them in person. But right. yeah, uh, th there's been many different species, even in our own group, our closer related relatives. In fact, we are so closely related that we still have some of their DNA in our lineage now because we humans, uh, we're not always very picky when it comes to who we mate with. When, when the mood strikes. <laughs> when the mood strikes, yes. You know, they were playing some Barry White back in the day. and Yep. Neanderthals were like, oh, hey, I like that dude. And the next thing you know. <laughs> yep. Or, or, you know, it could have been more sinister. We don't really know. But uh, <laughs> oh, right, right. reproduction <laughs> happened. And, and we, we carry DNA from Neanderthals, from Denisovan humans, and from at least one other species that we haven't yet identif positively identified. By, oh, we only know that they have some unique DNA that is found in some populations in Asia. So and generally speaking, on that same note, uh, the sub-Saharan African population does not generally have uh, Neanderthal or Denisovan this is true. DNA. They, they they have a small amount sometimes, but it's definitely not as widespread as it is outside of Africa. Yeah, yeah. So anyway, back back to the yeah. so <laughs> we side quested again. No, that's fine. Uh, it's 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 a fun topic. I I could talk yes. all day about it. So I'm trying to I'm trying to keep it to an hour or so. So what is the evidence for this? Why why is it that scientists are so sure that this is in fact the case? Why is it the foundation of all biological studies? Well. There's a lot of history here, but very briefly, uh, in 1735, uh, the Swedish scholar Carl von Linné, or better known as Carolus Linnaeus in his Latin publication name, uh, he published a book called Systema Naturae, or The System of Nature, where he compiled his observations of organisms, noting that for every organism he identified, it had a set of traits that it shared with, or rather, that it had a set of traits, had sets of traits that were shared in a nested pattern of similarities and differences with every other organism he observed. So there are a bunch of organisms that all have three main body segments, six legs, and a hard shell over the, over the, of their first set of wings. Those are beetles. Well, beetles have a number of traits that they share with a bunch of other organisms. They have, that have three set, three main body segments, six legs, antenna, a bunch of other things, and we call them insects. Insects, though, still have a lot of things in common with other organisms. They have hard exoskeletons, multi-segmented bodies, multi-segmented legs, uh, mouth parts that go back and forth. And, well, they're a lot like the arthropods. And so on and so forth, identifying groups of organisms at every level where they have many traits in common and some traits that are different. And he didn't really have an explanation for this. He just assumed that it was the order of creation, that for whatever reason, uh, the creator had wanted to create organisms in this pattern of differences within differences within differences or similarities within similarities and similarities. Right. It is important to note that it's a pattern of similarities and differences, not just one or the other. And, it, you know, this was something of a mystery, right? Why, why is this the case? Well, um, let's fast forward a bit. Uh, the Industrial Revolution was getting underway, and this meant there were a lot of digging projects. These digging projects went down through layers of rock, and they found that across large areas of land, you'd find the same kinds of layers of rock over and over again, each of them physically and chemically distinct, and many of them with distinct fossils in them. And these fossils were always found in the same order. So you never found a trilobite above a, well, they weren't identified as such yet, but dinosaur fossil. They just, right. It just never, ever happened. Um, and, and they would find these things in the same order every time. And it obviously goes a lot more granular than that. There's many different species of trilobites and our ammonites, another extinct group of organisms with these spiral shells that were related to today's uh, nautiluses. Um, they found these again and again in the same order. You'd find groups that were 
more similar to each other in one layer. And then another layer, you'd find different groups that were related to, or at least similar to the previous ones, but not the same. And also very importantly, most of these were not represented by any of today's organisms. They were extinct. And this was actually a new concept of extinction. Uh, they, for a while, it was thought that, you know, that there, that extinction just couldn't happen, that the creator wanted to make sure that there was always a representative. But eventually they realized, no, many of these things really are just gone. And so this helped cement the idea that the, that life on earth had changed over time, that there was, if you went back in time, you would see a different set of life than you see now. And again, they didn't really have a great explanation other than then there was just, they could tell there were many long ages of time that had occurred. They didn't really have a, a good idea of just how long it was. They knew that it had to be in the, at least many hundreds of thousands of years, up to millions. Um, the age of the earth wasn't really determined until we were able to actually count individual atoms uh, starting in the 1950s uh, by calculating the ratio of radioactive elements to the products that they turn into over time. But that's a different issue. Uh, suffice it to say, we now know that the Earth uh, has been in roughly its current mass for about 4.54 billion years with a margin of error for around 1%. Um, but back to the main topic, they knew that life had changed over time. It was not the same now as it was in the past, and that even in the past, it had changed throughout the past. But again, there wasn't a great explanation. There were some scientists that came up with some ideas of how this might have happened. Uh, most notably, the scientist Lamarck. He thought that perhaps organisms could acquire traits over the course of their life and pass them on to offspring and thus affect change. But many experiments showed that this did not happen. Uh, unfortunately, these experiments are rather cruel, involving cutting the tails off of mice to see if their offspring would have shorter tails. But yeah. uh, ethics aside, it was determined this does not happen. So let's fast forward to 1858. You probably won't, if you know about this topic, you might be wondering why I said 1858, not 1859. Well, that's because that's when the first actual paper on natural selection was published. Uh, Charles Darwin and Alfred Wallace both hit upon the same idea at around the same time. And in fact, Alfred Wallace sent a letter to Darwin asking him to look over his ideas because he didn't realize that Darwin had been working on the same thing for the last 20 years or so. Um, and Darwin realized, oh, I'm about to get scooped. I guess we better co-publish this. He was actually some, somewhat of a gentleman. He could have just rushed to publication with his ideas, um, but right. he allowed Wallace the honor of being co-author on the first paper in 1858 presented to the Linnaean Society, named after uh, Carl Linné that I mentioned earlier. Um, they detailed the ideas of natural selection, that organisms tend to change and diversify over time based on their match with the environment, with, with variation that is based on the in traits inherited from their ancestors. And this is the foundation of what we now think of as evolutionary theory. So right, right. these, you know, these observations were very controversial when they first, came, rather not the observations, but the theory behind them was very controversial when it first came out because people had up to that point generally assumed that organisms had some sort of special place in nature because let's face it, rocks don't get up and move around and they certainly don't write scientific treatises. Correct. Or at least not yet. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, I suppose you could say that silicon is a rock that we've tricked into thinking with computers and AI is starting to write stuff. So we're maybe not that far off from that. <laughs> right. And there was that one species in Star Trek, the original one. At least one. <laughs> Several in Futurama, uh, one in Galaxy Quest. There's quite a few rock, rock species in science fiction. Yeah. And, um, and of course, the Thor movies. Ah, uh, yes, indeed. Uh, let's not forget those. So the... Um, now, in, in 1828, uh, I, I think it was uh, Anton Lavoisier, uh, there was a chemist who uh, was able to synthesize, no, I don't think it was actually Lavoisier, but uh, there was a chemist that was able to synthesize for the first time an organic molecule, urea of all things. I think it gives pee its funny smell. Um, okay. <laughs> and, uh, but he was able to synthesize it without any organisms present. And up until that point, there had been this kind of idea of a vital force or elan vital, as it was sometimes known, um, that would prevent uh, normal matter from becoming living matter or from being in the same category as living matter. And this basically disproved that. It showed that no, the chemicals found in organisms are in fact the same chemicals that exist out in nature. And the, as the periodic table was worked out, the, the various elements that exist in nature um, and the study of chemistry showed more and more that indeed life as magical as it might seem at first really is a an ongoing series of complex chemical reactions. Um, 
And, and so that had also helped to chip away at the idea that life had to be magically or mystically created. So with this background, there was still a lot of pushback. Um, there weren't anywhere near as many fossils known back then as we know now. So it was unclear whether this idea would continue to hold up as we found more fossils. Would we find fossils that were intermediate between earlier and later groups um, with some traits shared with both of them? Or would we start finding fossils in maybe in an order, but not an order suggestive of a change by inheritance over time. Well, in 1861, just three years after the paper was published and one year after Darwin published the book or on the origin of the species, uh, the first Archaeopteryx uh, skeletal specimen was found. Archaeopteryx is a, an animal that had uh, many dinosaur-like features. It had a long bony tail. It had claws on its hands. It had teeth in its mouth, but it also had a full suite of feathers and could probably glide and maybe even fly under its own power for a bit. It had traits just like Darwin and Wallace had expected, that there'd be traits shared with an earlier group, the theropod dinosaurs, and a later group, the birds that we know today. And it, did, and it wasn't exactly like either of them. It had traits shared with them, and they were intermediate in between, right? The fingers were close together, but not all the way fused like we see in modern birds. Um, the claws were retained into adulthood, which is a trait we don't see in too many birds, although some, many, some of them still do, like emus and chickens do still have claws on their wings. Um, and it had traits that we don't see in any bird now, like a long bony tail. Birds nowadays have a very shortened tail, much like uh, we apes do, um, where all the, and the tail vertebrae get fused into a single group. We call that a pygostyle. So there was, yeah, the objection to the fossil record, which was met with more evidence. Uh, there was the objection that we didn't know the method of inheritance. Well, uh, around the same time as in the 1860s, shortly after Darwin published On the Origin of the Species, and Alfred Wallace published uh, the Melee Archipelago, uh, a monk named Gregor Mendel was doing some very painstaking experiments on the inheritance of traits in pea plants. Um, he found that there were a bunch of traits that he could isolate as having, as occurring in one line of seeds versus another. And by crossing them, he, he determined that traits are shared in by twos and some are dominant and some are recessive, meaning that if a parent has a trait, then if it's dominant, the offspring will have that trait. If it is recessive, then the, and it has, it makes offspring with a parent with that same recessive trait, then the recessive trait will show. But if it makes offspring with a parent with a dominant trait, the dominant trait will show. And uh, if you've ever filled out a Punnett square in biology class, that's what that's showing, that traits are inherited from both parents in, a, in sexual reproduction. And, excuse me, and they, they are either generally speaking, dominant or recessive. Now, that's a very simplified view of what, how genetics actually works. Many traits are controlled by many different factors. Uh, as we mentioned earlier, eye color is controlled by many, fit, many factors all at once. So it's not a one-to-one -one inheritance, but that did give people the idea of how inheritance can be modeled. And unfortunately, because uh, he published in, I think it was German, and used a lot of rigorous mathematical models, biologists at the time were mostly British and not so big into math and didn't really understand his papers very well. Uh, it wasn't until the early 1900s that um, more biologists started re-examining his work and together came up with the modern synthesis of evolution and genetics, where they determined that indeed, now that we know the, the method of inheritance, because it had also been determined to be DNA as the molecule of inheritance by other experiments in the 1920s, they worked out that um, these traits being inherited through DNA is exactly what would produce the variation in inheritance and diversification over time that is the backbone of evolutionary theory. Um, so rather than falsifying it as could have been done, right, because we didn't know the method of inheritance yet, the advent of genetics overwhelmingly confirmed the expectations of evolution, and it is now the backbone of modern biological studies. So, you know, what does that mean for us? Why? Why do we care if evolution is the backbone of biological studies? Most of us aren't biologists. I would like to be someday, but I'm not yet. I just study it as a hobby. I, I assume that you'll be as close. If you don't actually, I know your dream is to be a paleontologist. It sure is. Right. So I'm assuming that if anyone's going to probably do that, uh, <laughs> starting from the armchair version, it would probably be you. So I'd like to think so. I'd like to think so. Um, for, if, you know, I, I make a good amount of money in my IT job right now, so I'm saving that up so that I can live off investment proceeds and get a PhD on my own time. Um, 
So you know, what, are, what are the actual applications of this? Because good scientific ideas tend to lead to real world applications. There's a reason why they didn't build uh, 800 meter tall skyscrapers in the middle ages, right? There were many scientific advancements that had to come about in physics and in engineering and material science and chemistry and all kinds of things that allowed us to build the Burj Khalifa in the United Arab Emirates. Uh, that, that's the tallest, current tallest building in the world. Um, and it wouldn't be possible without all those, the advances in those many scientific fields that I mentioned. So understanding evolution, understanding the, as I mentioned earlier, the unity, diversity, and history of life has led to a lot of great advancements. Um, perhaps the easiest to understand is just finding the transitional fossils that I mentioned, fossils that have the traits that are shared with and intermediate between earlier and later groups of organisms. Um, probably the most famous example is the discovery in 2004 and publication in 2006 of a fossil that has now become known as Tiktaalik. Uh, the paleontologist Neil Shubin and his team were well-versed in evolutionary theory and in geology and determined it is most likely that an organism that has lungs and fins that are sort of like limbs should be found in a river environment from about three, somewhere between 360 and 380 million years ago. So they got out their geology maps. They looked for a place where they could find rocks like that. And they found one in Greenland, or sorry, not Greenland, in Canada. Um, and for five years, starting in 1999, they went out there every summer under the you know, permanent Arctic sun of summer and dug through the strata. And in 2004, they found what they were looking for. They found a fossil that had just the things that they were expecting to find. Now, if you just go out into the middle of the... North, the Arctic Canadian wilderness and start digging, unless you know, unless you have very good reasons to think that you're going to find what you expect to find, there's no reason they should have found a fossil that had just what they thought it would have if they, there was no basis to their ideas about evolution and geology. But sure enough, they did. They found exactly what they were looking for. It's like they had a treasure map and it told them where to find the treasure, but the treasure map was not a written map. It was knowledge and theory, understanding of theory. And that is the gold standard of any scientific theory, the ability to make new predictions, find new data that matches with that theory and no other, because there is currently no other explanation for why they would have been able to find a fossil with the traits that they found in the age of this and type of environment of the strata that they found it in. Now, that's, that's a big flashy example that made a lot of headlines, but it also has a lot of application in medicine. Uh, the Nobel Prize in Medicine was awarded, I believe, in 2018 for work done in the 1990s on accelerating the evolution of proteins in a lab by increasing mutation rates without making them go catastrophically haywire and producing invalid organisms. Uh, they're able to make new versions of proteins that are useful in uh, drugs and personalized medical treatments uh, in a way that just couldn't be done through normal uh, evolutionary means of just growing bacteria in a lab and hoping they pick out a new mutant every once in a while. Um, there's also uh, organ transplants. Uh, if understanding the relationship of organisms to each other means that some, you know, scientists are able to use organs from like pigs or baboons sometimes to temporarily, not permanently, but at least temporarily replace a human organ that was failing. Uh, because as mammals, we are more, and with, in the case of baboons, primates, we are more closely related to them than we are to alligators, for example, or even with, yes, sorry, go ahead. I was going to say, I, as, as you know, I've recently become quite knowledgeable about uh, burn survivors and skin grafts. And one of the treatments for uh, skin grafts is they will put fish skin on the area where they grafted and also pig skin. Mm -hmm. And, you know, 40 years ago, the idea of putting fish skin on a person to help heal them would have been crazy. Mm -hmm. And yet today in certain situations, it is the ideal thing. <laughs> and mm -hmm. yeah, I, I just find that amazing. Yeah. And because we share vertebrate ancestry, there is enough in common with our cells and the fish cells that it can actually work. Um, and uh, another, one other, one of my favorite examples is antivenom. Uh, antivenom is produced by injecting large organisms like horses with snake venom in small doses, causing them to produce antibodies that we can then inject into a human if they get bitten by a snake or other organism that we're extracting venom from. 
And this works because the cellular mechanisms in other mammals are similar enough to our own that they'll produce antibodies that work in our bodies. Again, this doesn't, that wouldn't make any sense if we were just separately magically created, or at least there'd be no particular reason to expect it, but it does make sense. And they're able to correctly predict that this will work because we share common ancestry. Um, it's also uh, useful in determining paternity. Uh, recent, you know, in a few a few years ago, it was determined that in fact Thomas Jefferson had had offspring with his with the woman he kept as a slave, um, as Sally Hemings. Um, you know, very sad and uncomfortable story. But the reason why they were able to do that is genetic testing of relatedness. It's the same testing they use to determine relatedness between species nowadays. And if it works for testing Thomas Jefferson. It works for testing humans and chimps as well. Um, it, it's the same kind of test. There's not any qualitative difference, despite what people who don't like the idea of evolution might tell you. So exactly, that's a very brief overview of the evidence for evolution, what evolution, what evolution means, what evolutionary theory means, the evidence for evolution, the applications of evolution. Uh, we already went over a little bit of what evolution is not. There's a few other misconceptions I want to address before we wrap up here. Go for it. Um, so evolution does not involve the emergence of a whole new group of organisms from a, an existing group of organisms. Groups of organisms diversify over time and expand the scope of a group, but you're never going to get an entirely new genus or group of species from an existing genus. Um, I believe it or not, I was actually trying to just trying to help a, uh, so I want to understand this, who didn't, who doesn't accept evolution himself. And he actually got it right. Uh, when I was trying to explain it to him, he thought I was saying it was backwards. Uh, he actually said correctly that a family evolves from a genus, which evolves from a species. And again, as we mentioned earlier, those are the ranks in the Linnaean classification system. Useful, but not necessarily um, authoritative. But that is correct. Uh, as diversification and change continues, the descendants of what was once just a single species among many other species will eventually be identified as their own group as long as they continue to leave descendants behind. So. That's why, for example, there's an entire group of animals called arthropods that all have certain traits in common. They have segments, they have compound eyes, they have segmented legs, and these are all traits that would have been found in their last common ancestor. Now, their last common ancestor probably looked a lot like many other organisms that were around at the time, but that group happened to have the descendants that are still alive, whereas the loopods, uh, which is another group very closely related to arthropods, uh, they don't have any living descendants. Um, Another thing that people often mistake is, well, as you mentioned, evolution is linear. It's not. It means that because every population of organisms is comprised of many individuals, each of those individuals is reproducing at different rates. There's going to be diversity that shows up in one part of the population that might not show up in another one. And if there's enough uh, difference between them, sometimes that's enough to lead to a new species um, over enough time. Again, it's not going to happen in a single generation, but there's nothing that suddenly cuts one off from another except maybe like an earthquake opening a split in the earth where you just have no choice but to be separate from your close relatives at that point. But even then, they're still genetically the same species for a while until over time, the diversification and change draws them apart. Another thing, it doesn't necessarily involve greater complexity. Yes, organisms now are in general more, or rather there are more complex organisms now than there were in the past, but there are also still very simple organisms. Uh, you are, in fact, a symbiosis of many simple organisms that live inside your intestines and help you digest your food. And, you know, you drop several billion of them every time you use the bathroom. Um, <laughs> and, uh, you know, these bacteria are much simpler than any of your cells, but there are almost as many bacterial cells in your gut as there are human cells in the rest of your body. And it also doesn't mean that organisms are getting better. There's no goal with evolution. Evolution is what happens when organisms reproduce and reproduce with variation across generations in a dynamic environment with limited resources, as we mentioned earlier. It's not trying for anything. Humans are not some sort of pinnacle, neither are jellyfish. As long as a group of organisms isn't extinct, then they are still an evolutionary success. Evolution only stops with extinction. And it's not trying to make anything better. It's not even trying to do anything. It's just what happens when you have those assumptions that we mentioned earlier. So those are the misconceptions I wanted to get out of the way. Is there anything else that you've seen, Jack, that you'd want to get some feedback on? Well, there is, but I think it probably could end up being its own episode. Um, maybe in the future, we could go more in depth into convergent 
evolution. That is a fun sort topic. Of, um, I, just a slight example would be uh, the thylacine, also known as the mm -hmm. Tasmanian tiger. You know, it's a marsupial, but it fills the same niche that, you know, wolves or lions or tigers fill in their environment. You know, but it's a marsupial, not, a, you know, you know what I mean? Yeah. And, so, and, and it's that whole yeah, idea. It's and there's skull. plenty of examples of that. Yeah, and if you, if you compare a thylacine skull to a canine skull, they look very similar, at least at first glance. However, when you look at them closely, you'll see that the the bones that fuse together to make the skull are proportioned very differently and fused in very different ways in the thylacine than they are in the canine. And yeah, so convergent evolution, just very briefly, is when natural selection, when environment is similar enough between different groups of organisms that they end up having traits that look fairly similar to each other. Uh, like between marsupials and other mammals, uh, moles, which are it, have evolved at least three different times, um, or things that look like them rather, things with short, round, squat bodies uh, with powerful front claws for digging. Uh, there are marsupial moles, there's golden moles, and then there's European moles, and or European and, and Eurasian moles, I should say. Um, I don't think I'm giving the correct common name for them, but there's quote unquote true moles, and then there's the golden moles, which are African animals, and then there's the marsupial moles, which are marsupials, and all of them, have about the same look. They they have short squat bodies, tiny or no eyes, or at least covered over eyes, and powerful front claws that they use to dig burrows with. Why? Well, as it happens, living in that way is very helpful for some organisms. They're able to produce more offspring by digging and burrowing. And the ones that have powerful front claws and short round bodies are better able to dig through the dirt than those with other shapes. So you get moles a lot. <laughs> Even more than moles, you get crocodiles. You get crocodiles all over the place. Um, in fact, the Tiktaalik fossil I mentioned earlier has that crocodile shape. It has a long snout, eyes on the top of its head, nostrils on the top of its head, lots of little teeth to grab its prey. And you see that again and again. Mammals have even made crocodiles. In fact, the ancestors of whales looked a lot like mammal crocodiles. Right, so right. Um, yeah, they, they've shown up uh, in amphibians uh, with the temnus bondyls uh, and the... So yeah, crocodiles have even shown up uh, in a related group called the phytosaurs. Uh, they look very similar to crocodiles, but again, if you look at their actual anatomy, it's very different from any of the crocodiles that we think of as true crocodiles. So yeah, it happens all the time. It's very interesting. Uh, and yes, it probably deserves its own episode. Uh, if you want to hear more on it, I would recommend the Common Descent podcast. They do have an episode all about that. It's very interesting. Awesome. Awesome. Uh, let's see. Is there anything else... Obviously, you know, maybe at some point we can talk about uh, the various types of humans, you know, that existed at some point. Neanderthals, Denisovans, um, is it? Denisovans. Yeah. And there's also, um, I know that in China, they've recently discovered uh, a few skulls and mm -hmm. the Chinese government wants it to be oh hey these are where chinese people evolved you know came from yeah, there's two like different the things scientific there. communities like we think it might be this yeah um, but that in itself is <laughs> there's be... two different things going on there yeah. there's the fact that china is home to a lot of homo erectus fossils homo erectus was another human population lasted uh almost two million years uh in some form or another there's a lot of variation in them enough that some scientists think they really should call them multiple different species and they were found uh, many of them were found in China, and for a while, the Chinese government was pushing for the idea that China was the was the place where Homo sapiens first uh, emerged from the po population of uh, Homo erectus. They've kind of pulled back on that now. However, also recently, they discovered a new, or at least new to science, fossil skull uh, that they've called Homo longi, or Dragon Man, which may actually be the Denisovans that you mentioned earlier. Unfortunately, the problem right now we have right now is that Denisovans are identified primarily by their DNA, which was found pre well-preserved in a cave, but only in some very tiny finger bones, which are not very good for identifying a species. Whereas this skull, which is distinct enough from Neanderthals or Homo erectus or our species Homo sapiens to be considered a different species, it was preserved in such a way that it didn't preserve enough genetic material to determine if it's the same as uh, Denisovan. So it, we still need more evidence to find out if those are in fact the same or if they're yet another human species. The the naming of that just is one of my all-time favorite stories because there was a crazy Russian dude named Dennis that lived in this cave and it was known as Dennis's cave. <laughs> and that's what this whole species is named after. 
Which is yep. funny because Dennis is the English version of Dionysus. So technically they're named after a Greek god. There you go. All right. So that is a very brief introduction to what evolution means and what evolutionary theory means and why we think it's true. I'll say that again. The doorbell just rang. That was a very brief introduction to what evolution means, uh, what evolutionary theory means, and why we think it's true, as well as a few things that people often get wrong about it. And hopefully, now that you've heard this, you won't get it wrong yourself. Yes, that's sort of the one of the points of Science with Lars. Uh, I think this was an excellent uh, first step, uh, sort of for what we're going to discuss as the rest of this this season goes on. And, excellent. Um, yeah, this I think was a, was great, t great starting point, and I think that we're going to be able to learn a lot from uh, these various bonus episodes that come out throughout the next year. And I really appreciate Lars joining up with me so that so that we can do this because, you know, like I, I think you should learn something new every day. And if you just listen to this, you probably learned several. <laughs> you, you got your week's worth of learning something new in in one episode. <laughs> I, I hope so. And, and, you know, I hope that I can learn something new with, with each of these interviews as well. I made a long outline and, you know, just even going over the points of my outline, I had to review a few things that I'd forgotten or didn't remember. And so I've learned something new too. Well, then, then it was doubly good. <laughs> so anyway, I'm going to go ahead and sign off once again, Lars, I appreciate your taking time out of your Sunday morning to do this. I'm looking forward to what we're going to talk about in the future and uh, audience, just so you know, uh, most of the time I'm going to be as surprised as the topic as you are, uh, which I kind of like. So um, anyway, I appreciate everybody listening, and I'm going to end the episode as I always do, and I know that uh, I typically fail at this, but um, try to live your life in a way that would make Bob Ross proud. Thank you for listening to Musings of an ADD Mind. If you enjoyed this podcast, or even if you didn't, please hit the subscribe or follow button.